We've been in a sermon series called Remnant. And every week I got to remind everyone who's joining us that this is not just a series through the Sermon on the Mount. This is a trajectory setting moment for us as a church. And what that means is we're saying language that we're going to repeat again and again and again. We believe that remnant is the vision of who God has called us to be moving forward. So a remnant is a group of people that remains. It means when a huge scale thing has been kind of whittled down to a faithful few, the remnant is what remains. And what you see as you read through the scriptures is that the people of God are called the remnant when they are the faithful ones who are still praying, when it seems like the culture and the people of God are starting to blend together. You see this in Babylon when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing out. They are the remnant of the people of God in a culture that is lost and confused. And so what we've said is seven years in as a church, we've got a lot of people who are calling this church home now, and that's awesome. But we're not going to start to shift the messaging to fit a wider audience. We're actually going to bring it in thinner and thinner and thinner and talk about how the way is narrow that leads to life and call the masses to be a part of the remnant instead of drowning out the remnant by catering to the masses. So our goal for you, if you're here today, is not that you would leave here and go, that was a cool church service. It's not that you would leave here and go, you know, I think I felt a little bit of the love of God when we were singing that song. I think I might take a step forward. I think I might get a Bible. I think I might get baptized. All of those things are awesome. But we're not going to settle for less than the life Jesus died and rose for you to live. And so our vision for you, and this is crazy for some of you to even go there and, and dream about for a second. Our vision is that you would become the most passionate follower of Jesus, whose life is built on the rhythms of the life of Jesus, that you spend time with Jesus every day, that your prayer life is vibrant, that you're seeing God do things in your family, that you're not perfect, but you are a worshiper, and you are continually falling more and more in love with Jesus. We're doing this looking at the Sermon on the Mount, not as bonus points for special Christians, but the Sermon on the Mount for what it was, which was a layout of what it means to walk in the culture of the kingdom of God. This might shock some of you, but when Jesus first preached, he didn't say, okay, I'm going to die in your place. If you pray a prayer and it has the right wording to it and you intellectually ascribe to a set of beliefs or doctrines You get into the kingdom of heaven, and I'll see you in heaven one day. That is not his message at all. And that's the message that some of us have received for a long, long time. Here was Jesus' message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus' message is that the kingdom is readily available right here and right now for you and for me. And the Sermon on the Mount immediately follows that because it's like, well, what does it mean for the kingdom of God to come near in my life and in this world? And Jesus is like, I'm glad you asked because the answer is in this sermon. But in this sermon, I'm not going to shout out to thousands of people. I'm going to teach my disciples the remnant and I'm going to invite everybody to get in on what's really happening here. So this moment, the Sermon on the Mount, y'all, this is where we look at the literal teachings of Jesus and go, what would it look like if I became a disciple of his way? Here's the dream of this series. God, transform us from being consumers of Jesus's merit to being disciples of Jesus's way. That's the prayer. That we don't just consume the forgiveness that is ours in the blood of Jesus without taking upon ourselves the responsibility to walk as radical followers of Jesus in our day, right here and right now. We're learning to practice the way of Jesus. 
We're learning to apply the scriptures to our lives. We're learning to love those who are the most unlovable in our lives, and we're going to talk about that today. And y'all, I'm getting to watch this happen every single week. Last week, I know it was intense. It was so hard. Every single gathering felt like a boxing match up here talking about sexual sin. But the things that we are seeing people get set free from and the seasons of life who we're seeing impacted is making me go, man, if we don't need to be afraid to call people to more. We need to be afraid of settling. Like raising the bar makes people go, oh, so that's like possible for me? And that's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not giving you an impossible standard going, you better measure up. He's going, this is how great the kingdom of God is. I have come and I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. So you can actually live the way he's teaching, but you have to interpret it and understand it correctly. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Part four of our remnant series is called Consumed by Love. Consumed by Love. Can you look at somebody next to you and say, it's all about love. It is all about love. Consumed by the love of God. I wanted to ask a question. And Lake Martin, I know a lot of you are out there today. We're all jealous of the Lake Martin crew. We know it's Labor Day weekend, and y'all are all having a blast out there. Birmingham, I want you to jump in on this too. Have you ever had one area of your life totally consume every other area because it was that powerful in that moment? And this could be like a good thing or a terrible thing, but like one thing was happening in your life, and all of a sudden it was bleeding over to affect every other interaction. Could be like you just got a promotion or you just walked into a new relationship or everything was going right in this one area. And it's like, you're walking into conversations and you are about to bounce off the walls. You're actually enjoying going to class, miracle. You're actually loving your conversations with your coworkers. Everything's working. It's just because this one thing happened. It could be because of an Auburn victory. I'm not saying that's idolatry. That's fine. But, but it's like this one part of your life, something went well and now everybody's happy. I remember that fall in 2017 where... You remember when we beat Georgia and Alabama back to back? Y'all, church that Sunday? Oh, I mean, it was like, it was the most fun environment to preach to in my entire life. I wanted to take up five offerings. I was like, just keep passing it. Just keep passing the bucket because everybody was just overjoyed by the sense of victory that was happening that fall. And it was like nothing could go wrong in life because this one thing went right. Now, in the same way, that happens when some good things happen, but also when difficult things happen, they tend to bleed over. You ever been so anxious about one thing that you couldn't pay attention to anything else? And like great moments were right in front of you, great opportunities were right in front of you, but it didn't even matter because this one thing totally consumed you? I remember one time we were in a season a couple years ago of ministry where we were literally changing buildings every Sunday. We were adding services. I was completely exhausted. And my wife and I had circled this week on the calendar where we were going to go to the beach. And we finally get down to the beach. It's just us four. I'm putting my phone away and I get to just be with my family. And I remember somebody like, I had my phone on Do Not Disturb, but they called me like 18 times. And finally got a hold of me, and they're like, I would not bother you, but I need to know what to do with this. We posted this thing on social media, and there's this line that you said in a sermon that people are kind of twisting, and there's like a hundred comments on there, some of them calling you a heretic, and we want to know what you want to do about it. And I remember getting this call, and Anderson's right in front of me making sandcastles. And I'm going, how does... One moment, one thing going on that I wasn't even aware of start to steal from everything that really matters right in front of me. And I don't say that just so you have sympathy on me. I say that because that whole week was stolen by one thing happening. 
that ultimately didn't really matter. And now I'm over here trying to engage in joy, but yet this one thing has totally consumed me and made me anxious and made me freak out from the inside out. Have you ever had a moment like that? Now, I want you to think about that. That level of being consumed by something is what your relationship with God is supposed to be when it's based on God's love for you. God wants, this is God's vision for your relationship with him, and this is all I have to say today. I promise it's going to be real fast today, y'all. You're like, don't promise that. You could be lying. Who knows what the Holy Spirit will do? Here's God's vision for your spirituality, that you would be so consumed by God's love for you that it bleeds over and impacts every other interaction and everything you have going on. And the problem in this room, spiritually speaking, is that for many of us, the fuel of our relationship with God is sometimes the love of God, but sometimes switches over to fear. Sometimes it switches over to obligation. Sometimes it switches over to, I'm going to spend time with God. I'm going to obey God simply because I don't want what will happen if I don't. And I'm not saying that there are always going to be moments where you're in the flow of the love of God and you're feeling everything around you. No, it's not about being emotionally happy. This is about being spiritually grounded, that the love of God would become the motivation for everything that you do. And that is why Jesus's commands in the Sermon on the Mount are so radical because they're impossible to do if not fueled by love. If you're not consumed by love from the inside out, don't try to do this stuff because you will fail. And so I've heard people preach the Sermon on the Mountain. They go, it's impossible so that you'll know you'll need a savior and then pray the prayer and then let Jesus do on your behalf what you couldn't do for yourself. And now that's justification by faith and you're saved. That's not the Sermon on the Mount though. The Sermon on the Mount is impossible standard so that you'll find another source. That the source would no longer be your effort, the source would no longer be your fear, but that the love of God would come and invade every other area. And because I'm loved by God, I don't have to freak out about that. And because I'm loved by God, it it impacts the way I interact with you. And because I'm loved by God, everything else is touched and affected. So we've talked about some radical commands. Last couple of weeks, Jesus said, hey, if you want to be in my kingdom, your righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Everybody who hears that's going, well, that sounds impossible. But Jesus, once again, was not painting an impossible picture. He was going, no, 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 another source. You got to get it from within. It can't be adherence to rules and restrictions. It has to be a transformed heart from the inside out. That's why when Jesus deals with anger, he's like, you heard it said, do not murder. But I say, don't be angry with a brother or sister. He's going inside and going, it's about being consumed by love from within, not about checking the box from without. And then last week, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, he who lusts after a woman in his heart has already committed adultery with her. Jesus is not trying to be this impossible teacher. He's going, no, 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 look within. This is where the real problem is. And this is where you have to be consumed. Now, here's what we got today. We got four things on top of those two, that each one of these four things that I'm going to read about and talk about, they need their own sermon. In fact, they need their own series to truly deal with them. But I told you I have a simple message from God to let the love of God become the fuel that you live your life with. So I'm going to cover it all, and I'm going to read it all. But if you want more resources on this, I highly, once again, recommend The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. We have it in the lobby. It's on Amazon. It is the single, and I mean this, I do not say this lightly because I've read a lot. It is the greatest commentary I have ever read, ever. And I know that's dangerous to say because, yes, I've read Calvin. Yes, I've read MacArthur. 
I'm telling you, this stuff is gold. Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, if you want more. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. Hold it up high. All right. I haven't decided and thought about it until this moment what I want to do. So let's just turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. It was like I didn't even think about it leading into this moment. Love that you have your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles in the lobby. If it is at all an issue for you financially to buy a Bible, we will give you a Bible. If you feel weird asking, we will mail it to the front door of your house. The one thing everybody in this church should have physically is a Bible. And if you're new to your faith, we have what's called Jesus Bibles in the lobby. They're NIV, but they take the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and and relate it back to the story of Jesus, which I think is so necessary and so needed, especially if you're new to reading the Word of God. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 31. And Jesus is going to throw some haymakers, y'all. But as you read it, just remember, this is about internal transformation. Here we go. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. If you're there, say I'm there. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So instead of reading every section, we're going to take this chunk by chunk and just talk about it. When Jesus says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, that is referring back to Old Testament Mosaic law where men were required, if they got a divorce, to issue a certificate because divorce back then, 2,000 years ago and in Moses' day, was completely debilitating and demoralizing for a woman more than a man. Man could divorce and then move on, get a new career, get a new wife, get a new life. For the woman, that was absolutely unsurvivable. There's no way you're getting through that. And so what God did through Moses is go, hey, you've got to give her a, a physical like, thing that she can show the community and go, hey, this has been legislated, this has been seen, this has been stamped, and this has been approved. It was a law that was actually rooted in love. But here's what happened in Jesus' day. There were these two teachers. One was named Shammai and one was named Hillel. If you watch The Chosen you see that this is happening in Jesus' day 2,000 years ago. There were two different schools of thought that were happening in Judaism. And their big argument at the time was about divorce. And in Hillel's school, he basically said, hey, the, the Levitical law gives us a right to divorce women for any reason at all. You just have to give her a certificate. So in Jesus' day... There was a lot of liberal thought about divorce. Like, you don't even need a reason. If you just wake up one day and you want to get out of that relationship, you just have to issue the certificate and make that happen. But in Shammai's school, the argument was, hey, the only reason why that's acceptable is if there's adultery. That's it. So what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's not making a blanket statement that the only reason why you can ever get a divorce is adultery. He's not creating a new thing. He's actually aligning himself with a teaching that is more committed to the scriptures, and watch this, way more committed to the dignity of women. And he's going, no, 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 no. It's not just give her a certificate because you feel like it. What the law means is adultery, but when you read the scriptures, it's not just that. You read the Apostle Paul, he talks about neglect, he talks about abuse, and I realize in a room this size and with everyone listening online, I'm not naive to the fact that so many of us have been touched, either in our immediate family or extended family, by divorce. Devastating for kids, devastating for everyone involved. And when Jesus brings this teaching, you need to know that his heart for it is love, and his heart for it is the covenant picture of a marriage is one that stays together no matter what. 
Now, when I say no matter what, you, you shouldn't jump to the, the rare occasions where you go, yeah, well, what about this? What about this? That's where the scriptures come in and they make provision because of love. But I would say where there's repentance and where reconciliation is possible, God wants a marriage to stay together. And what I love about our church is that we have couples who have remarried and seen God do an amazing work of restitution, an amazing work of bringing their family to where they are. But all of them talk about it in such a way that's so biblical. And they look back and they go, listen, the devastation that happened to my family, every single person needs to know that the grace that we're experiencing now in our family, it went through a lot to get to this point. And God will walk you through that every single step of the way. But his heartbeat for marriage is a lifetime of covenantal union together. Now you get someone who's unrepentant and cheating on their spouse, yeah, divorce is probably in the cards. You get someone who's just doing their own thing and totally neglecting their family, yes, yes, yes. And that's where Jesus is coming in and going, hey, you, you can't just find any reason to do this. And he's preaching this to us in a day in 2021 where we have something called a no-fault divorce in our laws where it's like, no reason whatsoever, we just couldn't reconcile, we just couldn't get along. And this word collides with that and goes, no, 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 love demands more of you. And when you are consumed by love from within, it makes it possible for God to write a story of redemption and reconciliation that gives him glory in a way that will shock even some of you who are listening to me right now and want to give up on your marriage. Let's see Jesus do something special in our marriages. And like I said, I could go into detail. We should do a whole series about this. The great thing about this one is somebody asked Jesus a question about this comment in Matthew chapter 19, and he goes into more detail of why he's teaching it this way. So check out Matthew 19 if you want more on that. Let's go to verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So he talks about divorce, then he talks about oaths. And this one might feel a little strange, but it's still relevant to our day. There was a pattern 2,000 years ago of manipulation based on what you were willing to swear an oath on. So if you wanted to push someone to believe you or to side with you, you could call an oath on beliefs. You could call an oath on people in your family or on God himself to go, no, no, no. You should trust my character and you should trust me and go with me on this deal because I'm swearing an oath by this. And Jesus is pointing out that the only reason why we give oaths in the first place is because we don't have the character and integrity to actually live out our word when we say yes or no. And so he's going, just let. If you say yes, it's a Yes. If you say no, it's a no. And that models for the world a level of character and integrity that they cannot find anywhere else. To our context, obviously, I would say there are moments where you take oaths. Some people take this way too extreme and they go, we shouldn't even do marriage vows. We shouldn't take offices where we have oaths. No, no, no. Jesus literally testified under oath before he died. So when you're reading these, even as you're reading these examples, Jesus is painting a picture of the type of person you are becoming more than he's trying to speak to. Okay, in that situation, you do exactly this. Are you picking up what I'm saying? It's like the, the culture of the kingdom is when you meet a kingdom-minded person, when they say yes, they're all in. And when they say no, that is it. And I'm looking at a group of people who's overcommitted and a little bit overwhelmed. And the reason why they're overwhelmed is because they're overcommitted. Some of you, your yes is way too loose, and your no is way too rare. 
and it's the reason why you're exhausted. I'm in a community group loaded with parents of young kids, and I am shocked. I'm sorry to call you out, guys. You're like, we love that we're in a community group with the pastor so he can talk about us on stage. I'm shocked by how wide their yeses are. And I'm not in it. Like, I don't have kids who are that age. I got one who's four, one who's two, and then one on the way, y'all. Number three is on the way. I almost forgot to mention that today. I love how many of you, when we announce that we're pregnant with number three, we're like, oh, the sermon last week makes sense now. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny, hilarious. Um, number three coming in March 2022. And so we're learning as we do this, but I'm shocked by how many parents are just like, yes to everything their kid might want to do. And you look at how overwhelmed they are and their lack of rhythms and their lack of rest. And you go, you know, you can, there is this secret word in the English language called no, and it's definitive and it will free you up. Let your yes, let your yes be yes. When I get requested to preach somewhere, I drive people crazy because I take like months to answer. Because I know, once I commit to them, I'm not going back later and going, hey, I had another thing come up, another opportunity, and I just might want to cancel that. I don't want to be that flaky person. I want to honor this scripture. And so when I say yes, it is a, it is, I will be there unless there is an emergency. And when Christians live with their word and their integrity like that, it changes the way we relate to people. And we no longer have to call on allegiances elsewhere to manipulate situations. Okay, let's go to verse 38. Isn't this fun? We're just having a Bible study in church, y'all. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asked you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus has talked about divorce, he's talked about oaths, and now he's talking about revenge. And this is where with every command, it gets a little more ridiculous to our minds. But it's also happening in such a way where if you live out the previous one, the next one makes sense. And so Jesus is going, let your yes to my kingdom be a yes to the way you treat people regardless of the way you are treated. You've heard, go back to it, you've heard it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Y'all, that's in the Old Testament. So he's quoting something and he's going, you guys are living a law for justice that's giving you a reason to respond negatively to those who mistreat you. So eye for eye and tooth for tooth was just, hey, the, the punishment should match the crime. That's justice. But when Jesus steps in, he goes, no, 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 you don't need to be holding on to how do I pay back people for what they wrong me with. It's how do I love people in such a way that disarms their advances against me in the first place. So when they slap me on one cheek and I turn the other one, what that is supposed to do is disarm the cycle of anger. Have you ever noticed how anger is like a domino effect? And so one person's anger turns into another, turns into another. Here's where kingdom comes in. When kingdom people show up, the cycle ends. And the person who's wronging you is going, wait, so you're just, you're just going to not just take this, but invite it? And that's not becoming a doormat. It's letting love change the narrative. This is what people misunderstand about Martin Luther King Jr. They look at him and they compare him to others in that movement and they go, yeah, but you're not going to hurt. You're not going to return this hate with a fight. And he would say over and over again, the fight is love in the face of hate. We will change your heart and we will love you as you hate through this. 
And then Jesus uses this example. He says, if, if you walk with someone one mile, go the second. That is so offensive 2,000 years ago. Because Roman soldiers could legally come up to anyone who was a citizen of Rome or underneath the empire, but literally a slave under their civilization and go, hey, you're going to take my pack and you're going to walk. And they were only legally required to go one mile. And Jesus goes, you will create such an environment of love when you go, not just one, but can I take this any further for you? Now, this isn't like forcing yourself to do things that you're not supposed to do. He means pay attention to opportunities to serve those who would oppress you so that it creates an on-ramp for the love of God to become the focus of the conversation. Do you see how the remnant, this is how we're supposed to live, y'all. We're supposed to live not looking for opportunities to do the bare minimum, but looking for opportunities to throw people off with the way we respond because the love of God has taken over the throne of our hearts. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. Now we get to the last one, and if those didn't bother you, this one will. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to say this about that last line. Perfect is a bad English translation of that word. Because when we hear perfect, we think flawless. But a better word that I think communicates that word in Greek better is holy. Be set apart, be different, be moving toward completion, be ever becoming like the character of your father is what that literally means. It doesn't mean like get to a point right now where you never mess up again. It means there's something so different about you. And of all of Jesus' teachings, y'all do not miss this, of everything Jesus taught, this was the most radical 2,000 years ago, and it is still the most radical today. No one who had ever led a movement spiritually ever brought something like love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, which is an offensive way of loving them. Don't just defensively love them and take it, but like return their evil and their harm and their ill intent toward you with a level of goodwill, with a level of God bless them, with a level of I'm going to love you on the offensive even though you oppress me. 2,000 years ago, everyone listening at this point is going, oh my, all right. The anger thing was, whoa, and the adultery thing was guilty, and the, and the divorce thing, man, that's a tough standard, and the oaths thing, like, we got to be careful with that, and then revenge, okay, I'm still with you, but this is where, for a lot of people, they go, this is impossible, because even to try and obey this feels fake. I've had times where, because of this verse, I have been in a season of really not preferring a certain individual in my life. And I'm not saying in a specific season. I mean multiple different ones. You guys are like, who are you mad at? Nobody. We're good today. All counts are clear. But like, I've gone through seasons where I've gone, you know what? I'm supposed to pray for those who are my enemies. And by enemy, Jesus means like politically and personally. So don't think like my enemy is out there, but think like the person you favor the least. And I've tried to live this out, and I've been so insincere. God, I just, I'm supposed to pray for this person who I don't like, and I just want to add that I don't like them, God, and that it wasn't fair. And so if you 
But if you could, I guess, like, bless them with the ability to discover how heavy their sin is, that would, that, that would be good. Like, that's what I do. So we either ignore this command or we fake obedience through it. But I want to go to this command, and I realize the day that we're sitting, and I realize that we're politically divided. I realize that things are happening in our world right now, and we've referenced Afghanistan several times, and it's like, they're supposed to read this and actually do it in the context that they are living in right now. But there's this diamond of an instruction as a motivation and an inspiration, the fuel for which you're supposed to obey this command. And I want you to see this. Go back to verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Watch this. That you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What does loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you have to do with being children of God? And when we, y'all look up here, don't miss this, because this is all God told me to tell you this week. I gotta make this one so clear. When we read the Beatitudes, we kind of glossed over this one that I didn't talk about a lot because I knew it was coming in this moment. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. What does loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you and being a peacemaker have to do with being a child of God? I want you to think about this. Children of parents prove that they are children of those parents the more they emulate the characteristics that are embodied by mom and dad. Children of parents prove to be children the more they emulate the characteristics that were modeled for them. So even kids in this room who have been adopted, you watch over time, they will become the spitting image of their parents, even though not biologically related, because the model that they have before them is impacting them over time. And you go, I know that's so-and-so's son, that's so-and-so's daughter, because what you're seeing in them is like, man, that looks a lot like your dad. And Jesus, in this command, do not miss this, he is inviting us to model the most dominant characteristic about your heavenly father, that you may be called children of your father who is in heaven. What does that mean? That means when you love your enemies, you are now sharing in what makes your dad God and what makes him him. Do not miss this. When God said his name to Moses, he laid out his character. There were a lot of gods, little g, in the Old Testament competing for glory and competing for people's attention and worship. And when our God distinguished himself, you remember what he said? The Lord, the Lord, what does that mean? Yahweh, Yahweh, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. God does not and did not have to be that way. That is just who he is. Our God, by nature, is so long-suffering. He is so slow to anger. He is so merciful that even in the Bible that you read, he drives his own people crazy with how long he gives the enemies of God to repent. 
Remember Jonah? Remember how mad Jonah was? That when he preached to the Ninevites, they repented of their sin and God said, I'm not gonna drop the disaster that I planned. And what did Jonah say? He said, I knew you were gonna do that. And that's why I didn't wanna come here. That's why I ran to Tarshish because I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. I knew you were gonna do what you do. Your God is so ridiculously loving and patient with his wrath and long-suffering over time that when he tells you to love your enemies, he's reminding you of what he did for you in the first place. He's calling you to remember. You know you got no business in my kingdom, right? You know it's just who I am. And the whole, the whole message of today, this is like, this is it, y'all, is this. Obeying the radical call of God to love your enemies means believing the radical truth that God loved you when you were his enemy. This is what it's about. You model that you are a child of your father when you love those who are the most difficult to love, but you will never obey that command if you don't believe the truth about God's grace and mercy in your life individually. And until you believe that, obedience to this will just be fake and superficial, or you'll just ignore it entirely and move on. And no wonder. It has to be consumed by the love that God showed you in the first place. God told me in this moment to ask you, where would you be right now? if not for mercy. Go there. This moment, right now, what is today? September 5th, 2021. Envision it. If God was not who he reveals himself to be in the Bible, where would you be right now? Would you be sitting here? Would you be alive? Would you still be married? Would you still have a shot at a new day in your relationships? Would you still have a shot at purity? Would you still... Would you still even have breath in your lungs? This is, this is what we don't realize. The mercy of God is not just forgiveness for things we apologize for. It's the fact that we even still breathe, y'all. What an act of mercy to take objects that deserve wrath because of rebellion. And not just wait out their unfaithfulness, but save them knowing that they're going to be unfaithful after they're saved and stick with them through the journey. This level of love and long-suffering faithfulness is so ridiculous and relentless. It makes me hit my face. And it also nauseates me to hear people talk about our God and say, I could never believe in a God who would throw people into an eternal hell. I could never believe in a God who treats people that way. I could never believe in a God who punishes sin that way. And by the way, that's the last nature of God that's listed in the description of Yahweh. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. But when I hear people say that, I go, you are so ignorant and arrogant and you don't even know it. And you are the ridiculous level of mercy that God did not pull the breath out of your lungs as you made that comment. So here's how crazy your God is. Your God has the power. He's sovereign. He has the power. Like last night to take the breath out of all of the lungs of every single member of the Taliban. You know he can do that? You know he's done that to groups of people before when his wrath falls? He let them all wake up today on a Sunday to go potentially kill more Christians. Why did he do that? Because our God is so merciful, willing that none would perish. He gave them another day 
another opportunity to taste the love of God. And you might hear that and go, yeah, but that's so reckless. That's so dangerous. That's so off. Why would he do that? And you go, that's how crazy he was to save you. And if you don't see his love that way, no way you'll be able to love anybody else that way. So we got to return to this. No, but you're like, my sin's not that bad. Yes, it is. If you could see your rebellion in the sight of a holy God, it would change everything about the way you live. And so here's, here's the vision for today. What would it look like for you to be consumed by the love of God? And maybe for the first time, it's going to make sense to you that the fuel of your relationship with God is supposed to be God's love for you to save you from wherever you are today. Because obedience to these commands is so huge. I worry about saying what I'm about to say. Obeying the Sermon on the Mount is not supposed to be hard. It's also not supposed to be easy. It's just supposed to become natural for those who are being consumed by love. Not hard or easy, natural. So in that commentary I told you about, and team, y'all can come up here, I'm done, or come up here so that I will be done, either one. That commentary I read, he said, this statement just jumped off the page to me. He said, it was not hard for Jesus to call out from the cross for the forgiveness of his enemies. I was like, what? That wasn't hard. It looked hard. Like, it sounds impossible. Remember Jesus hanging on the cross, dying? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He said, that wasn't hard. It's who he is. What would have been hard for him would be to call down curses on them. Because he has become love. And when you become totally consumed by love, the natural overflow of that position of your heart becomes your obedience. So I want you to learn to become consumed from the inside out by the love of God. I don't want you to try to do attributes that love is. What do we read? 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. We read this at weddings. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And the mistake we make reading that is the same mistake that we make reading the Sermon on the Mount. We go, I'll do that. I'll try to do that. I'll try to do that. No, it doesn't say try to do that. It says love is that. So you should, y'all need to turn him on as soon as possible because I'm not going to finish if you don't. We are not supposed to try to model those things. We are supposed to go, I am consumed by the love of God from within. And so, of course, I'm patient. Of course, I'm kind. Of course, I don't keep record of wrongs because I've been treated that way in the heavenlies. And when I let God love me that way, I become an overflowing sacrifice of love to the world around me. Some of you, for the first time in your life, you need to let God show you what you were saved from so that you can see what you were saved for. We are the remnant, and the marker of the remnant is a ready awareness of what we've been saved from. Yes, an eternity separated from God, but more than that, think about the moment you're in right now. Some of the young people in this room, I know, I know you've messed up. I know you've looked at things you wish you wouldn't have looked at. I know you've gone down roads you wish you wouldn't have gone down. I know that party was out of control. I know that, okay, you are 19. You are 20 years old and you are hearing this message. I know that's important and I know that was awful, but can I just say the graciousness of God that you're sitting in this room in this season 
and the tears that are on some of the faces in this room wishing that they heard this when they were your age, God has been so merciful to you. He's been so loving and he's demonstrating that, that you're sitting where you are right now. And so if we wake up to this, all of a sudden, the obedience doesn't have to be an impossible standard. It's the natural overflow. So here's all we're gonna do. We're gonna sing about the gospel and we're gonna enjoy the fact that God loves us. My challenge to you this week, here's the challenge. On the days and the moments that it's the most impossible, believe that God loves you. Today, as you go and do whatever you're doing, tomorrow on a holiday weekend, I want you to wake up tomorrow morning not having to work and not having to go to school. And I want the first thought on your mind to be, God loves me so much. And maybe if we get consumed by the love that we've been shown, we will overflow to a lost, dark, and broken world. Would you stand to your feet all over this place? We got a song to sing. We got gratitude to cultivate. And then you can go to the pool. Would you bow your heads all over this space? Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that right now as I pray, there are not enough words in the English language to describe how gracious and wonderful and compassionate you have been to me and to us. I pray that you would recall moments from our past to remind us what we've been saved from. I pray in the name of Jesus that you slaying all of our enemies on that cross and through that empty tomb would be the daily reminder that we have nothing to prove and everything to gain moving forward. Make us the remnant, God. Make us fully devoted followers of Jesus who are fueled and consumed by love from the inside out. We love you so much, God, but we can't even say that without saying it's because you first loved us. We sing to you now. We give you this moment. In the name of Jesus, amen.